Uh, if you would turn with me to Titus chapter 1. try to go through the first eight verses here. So Titus chapter 1, I'm going to go verses 1 through 8. God's Word says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and the proper time manifested his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Verse 9, for he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to refute those who oppose it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it is a tremendous privilege to come before you in this fellowship here to study your word, Lord. We just thank you for your word, that you have preserved it over the years for us uh, to, to even now know you, Lord, and that um, we may exalt you and worship you. Uh, through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. I just thank you for the privilege uh, to speak the word, Lord. And I just pray that you may speak through me, that I speak through it, that I speak with clarity, Lord, and that you uh, are glorified, that you are exalted, that we uh, come to greater love uh, to you, that we may know you in a new way. And, Lord, that that would lead to sanctified lives, that that would compel us to live in in obedience because of that love for you. And it's only because of the great love that you have shown to us, the great kindness, Lord. I just pray, Lord, for uh, lift up Rick Meese's mother as uh, she is suffering right now, Lord. I pray that she may recover from this. I pray for them to have comfort for Rick and Gail, um, to have peace even through this trial, Lord. And Lord, I pray also for Bill as well, that uh, we just thank you for your protection over him, that uh, you have, um, that he has had a successful surgery, Uh, but we know that the uh, days are going to be long and hard for him to recover, Lord. I just pray that you be with him. Give him peace, give him comfort. I pray give him strength each and every day, Lord, um, that uh, he continues to progress. Help him have 
uh, just to pray help him uh, alleviate the pain that he has, Lord, that uh, he may be able to um, sleep well. Lord, I just pray this uh, in your name, Lord. I just pray that you go before us as, as the word is spoken in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, this is only the second time I've been to the pulpit here. So the first time that I spoke here, I spoke on true spiritual service. Uh, this time I'm going to speak on the topic of true spiritual leadership. And this is what uh, you see um, in the text before us. Uh, as, as I read through that, we see the qualifications as to what is needed as far as leadership in the church. Um, you see that Paul is, is an example of somebody who is a great leader. Um, and even Titus as well. So for, for Titus to be chosen by Paul to carry on the ministry to the next generation, he must have thought very highly of him as a, as a good leader. So as we look at these two men, as we look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, as we look as to the qualifications of what is needed for leadership in the church, that's a fitting topic here of true spiritual leadership. So I'll pose a question to you. What exactly makes a good leader? What makes a good leader? What does conventional wisdom of our day tell us? Well, there's many people that will give you a litany of answers. There's many books uh, that's written on the subject. There's probably more books written on that subject than anything else. Uh, And from my experience with my job, I've taken classes on it. as required for my job. Uh, One thing that I've learned, though, is that the focus seems to be wrong. The focus that I see, at least from my experience, is that it it, uh, it seems to focus more on style or technique, formulas, practical solutions, methodology, step-by-step guides on how to meet every human need. And some of these things that uh, were mentioned, as far as my organization, is just having an in-depth knowledge of those around you, having excellent communication skills, having energy, being seen, being available, being approachable, being decisive, taking initiative, having a professional appearance and demeanor. Now, don't get me wrong, these things are are good. These are good things. You know, practical solutions uh, are not wrong at all. They're not. Um, But there has to be something more than that. What does the Bible tell us? Because there's a spiritual component there that's missing that I see in the world. And so the fact is, as we go through this chapter, every almost every qualification that is spoken here on leadership has to do with one thing, and that's character. And the only one thing that's an exception to that, as far as those who are going to be selected as elders, is the ability to teach. And so there is a spiritual dimension uh, for leadership. And so really, I am motivated to model, to, to, to look at people who serve Christ well. Look at people who serve Christ well. 
And of course, one of the, the people who is best for that is Paul, of course. And so one of, the, one of the reasons I really enjoyed going through 2 Corinthians in, in Sunday school is the fact that Paul really gives us a good glimpse of who he is. You see his leadership on display. And really that book, 2 Corinthians, it really gives you an in-depth look at his life and who he is as a, as a person, his heart, his passion. You really see the depths of his soul and you see the quality of of leadership that that made him so effective Um, and that was one thing that really I was really taken back by it and so through here this first section of Titus it addresses uh, spiritual leadership we're going to look at some things here we're going to look at the leadership qualities that are found in Paul we're going to look at some leadership qualities that's found in Titus and, of course, qualities that are necessary to be a leader uh, in the church here. So just a brief overview. Titus was given a twofold task here, as we see in, in verse 5 of chapter 1, that he was uh, given the task to straighten out the churches in the island of Crete and to also appoint elders in every town. That's a pretty daunting task, considering that Crete was considered the the island of a hundred cities. And so the island of Crete here, located in the center of eastern Mediterranean, southeast of the Greek mainland, the Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. And one of the words for being a liar was kratizo, which means to be a Cretan. They were infamous for being liars, for being greedy, for being brutal. And most of their cities were plagued by violence, sexual corruption. And so there was a severe uh, decline in the culture uh, during that time. Now, it's not certain when the gospel reached the island of Crete. However, the first mention of Crete is found in Acts 2, verse 11, at the day of Pentecost, when when Peter, uh, through the miracle of the Holy Spirit, Uh, These people had uh, heard the gospel preached in their native tongues. So we don't know who founded uh, the church in Crete. However, it was likely uh, that many of them had converted to Christ and returned back to their mainland. Uh, And uh, from there, the church had started. Now, it was years later that Paul had visited uh, with uh, Titus, had visited that island, and they had saw the condition of the church there at that time. So it's uh, at that time that Paul gives a, the Titus here this twofold task of straightening out these churches. And so, as, we, as I mentioned before, this includes appointing elders to the church. And the second task here is to confront and remove false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And so these teachers, uh, as it's mentioned here in the first chapter here, are teachers of those of the circumcision. Paul refers to them as rebellious people, mere Mere talkers, deceivers, those who uh, opposed, who were uh, obsessed with with Jewish myths and and human commands. And so this task here that Paul has given to Titus here was to silence them. Because they were doing all this for dishonest gain. 
And so as an indictment, Paul quotes one of their ancient prophets in verse 12, I believe, Epimenides, uh, who being frank about his own people said the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And he says this is a true, this is a true statement. Because the things that they taught, you know, they claim that they know God and the things that they taught uh, uh, didn't result in true sanctification. It didn't result in, in a changed life. He says by, by their deeds, uh, they deny him. They deny Christ. So knowing that Titus would receive uh, such strong uh, opposition, Paul equips Titus with this pastoral letter here. And there is a few purposes for this letter. So similar to the purpose of First and Second Timothy, in Timothy, it was to strengthen Timothy for the passing on of Paul's work. Sort of passing on the baton, as you would say. And so it was designed to, to strengthen him for the ministry. And the, same, and the same really is for Titus as well, too. So he was a young man to replace Paul. And he had this difficult task that was set before him of straightening out these churches. Timothy also had a similar task in Ephesus. Titus was in the island of Crete, and there was strong opposition both inside and outside the church. And so number two here, the purpose here, was not necessarily to give Titus information. Though Titus knew the standards of leadership, he was alongside Paul in 2 Corinthians. In fact, Titus is not mentioned anywhere in Acts, but he's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians. He was uh, a faithful worker, a companion of Paul, um, who worked alongside Paul. So he very much knew what was expected in leadership, in membership in the church, and how were they uh, to act. But this letter here was to arm himself with a document where his leadership and authority would not be questioned. And so Paul establishes his, uh, Paul establishes Titus' apostolic authority here in this letter. And he's making it clear here that he's passing his authority, he's passing his authority to Titus so he can instruct the church how to function as it should function. And so Paul knew that Titus, being a young man, similar to Timothy, would likely be challenged in this regard. So he needs the strong authority. He needs the strong authority. So Paul communicates clearly in these opening verses his authority and that this authority is delegated to Titus. So anyone that tries to go around Titus really has to deal with Paul on these issues because his authority comes from Christ. So that's one and two. The third reason really is, you know, this is a letter even now for us today. It's very contemporary. You know, it gives us insight for us today. It gives us a model of how the church, how the church should function. It's a model for ministry. It gives us a model of what a great leader should look like. And when Paul spoke of himself, defending himself to the Corinthians, the word that he speaks here. Um, he speaks to me here as far as uh, the character of a great leader. And you see these in the opening verses here. 
of the commitments that Paul had. He was committed to the truth. He was committed to the Lord, to his commands. He was a man who was under authority. Right? So the outline here for for this uh, really can be broken down um, in three parts. The main letter here just addresses what a church should look like. Right? What should a strong church look like? It's meant to give instruction on how a church should operate. It's doctrinal, but it's also very practical. It deals with qualifications of spiritual leadership. It confronts sin. It spells out roles and spiritual obligations to those in the church and in the family. Practical implications of our salvation. How to live godly in a godless world in order to be an effective witness to the outside world. So it's broken down here in three parts, as I said here. So chapter 1, the first part here, is it relates to Titus appointing leaders in the church, particularly their character, those to, to choose those who, uh, who are going to be in positions of leadership, is to look at their character and their conduct. Because the church in that current state, there was a vacuum of leadership. There was a lack of true spiritual leadership there. So Paul, that's the reason why Paul leaves out these, these qualifications necessary to be considered a leader in, these, in this church, in these churches here. And so that's a first priority. Because the character and effectiveness of the church as a whole is directly related to the quality of its leadership. If you have corrupt leaders, you're going to have corrupt followers. And so the second part here it leads us to uh, the second section. Paul addresses uh, character and conduct of members in the church. Because of the corrupt leadership, many in the church, uh, their lives were a, a total wreck, absolute wreck. They lived lives that were approach on Christ. And therefore, as he says in, in chapter 2 and verse 5, the message of Christ was discredited because of this. And those unbelievers could make legitimate claims, legitimate accusations against their way of life. And therefore, the message of the gospel would be completely unattractive to anybody in the church, or anybody outside of the church, I mean. So Paul paints a picture here of how the church should function, how the church should function. Older men and women um, should be full of integrity, should be self-controlled, and they should be models to those who are younger in the congregation. And so this transitions here to the third section where uh, Paul really addresses the character and conduct of the church as a witness to the outside world. He talks about the relationship of slaves to masters, uh, the responsibility to government authorities, uh, to live peaceful lives with others around us so that the message of Christ is not maligned, so that he is glorified by their conduct, by what they do. And so we'll, we'll get into this first section here, this first, um, 
section that addresses the topic here of spiritual leadership. Now, before I say, uh, before I speak on this, you might say to yourself, well, I don't want to be an elder in the church. I'm not going to be in a position of leadership in the church. Well, this is something that we should know because every Christian is called to be a leader in some capacity, regardless of your position, occupation, your giftedness. Now, that leadership is not all on the same level, but there is a sphere of, a, a sphere of influence that we have. It could be in the home. It could be in the job. Uh, it could be in the church. It could be in your school. I'm going to read Matthew 28, 19 to 20. The Great Commission, he says, that we are all, he says, go make disciples. The command is to lead others to him. We're called to be leaders on some level, to be an influence of others for Christ. So that's something we should keep in mind as we go through this text, as we look at these qualifications for leadership. And so I'll just get into the text here. So verse 1 here, it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Listen, Paul was a good leader because Paul was a good follower. And he was a good follower because of the one he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ that had changed his course of life on the, road to, on the road to Damascus. And it was by his grace that Paul became an effective leader. And so that same leadership qualities, as you see in Paul, are also the same qualities that you see in Christ, right? Because he's a follower of Christ. And so the first thing here is he says that I'm a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ here. You see Paul's commitment, his loyalty, his faithfulness to the Lord. Those words can be used interchangeably. And really this is one of the most godly virtues because God himself is faithful, right? Paul was loyal to the Lord and to his words and to his commands, and he was loyal to God's people as well. And this loyalty was evident in his dealing with the Corinthians here. Considering all the problems that they, that they had, you know, it's easy for anybody to say, you know what, I'm through with you. So many problems. You look at the anxiety he had, the hardships, the stress, the depression that he had over the church of, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Corinth, anybody could have easily gave up on them. There's a sad quote, too. I think it's in Second Corinthians chapter 12. He says, it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. So that for that reason, many ministers would have been tempted to give up on them. But Paul was a faithful leader because he was faithful to the Lord. And he was faithful because the Lord was faithful to him. So as a bondservant, Paul knew that he was a man that was commissioned under orders and therefore lived in absolute submission to God. Philippians 2 and 17, he says, I rejoice 
if I have sacrificed myself to you. He understood that there was no purpose or goal of his own but to carry out the will of the Lord. In Acts 20, 24, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if I only may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He yielded himself completely to God. And this was the reason why he was so effective. This was the heart of his effectiveness here. And so the nature of his service here is to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. That was his mission. So you look here at the second part of verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. He was committed to the mission that he had for him to complete here. And there's three aspects to this mission here as he speaks. It's one of evangelism, of edification, and of encouragement. So the first one here, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Evangelism. evangelism. So that's the first goal here, is to bring the elect to saving faith by the proclamation of his word. And faith is not activated until that word is spoken. Second Timothy 2 and 10, he says, truth that leads to justification. The beginning of the wisdom, beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's a proper of understanding, proper understanding of who we are, it's a proper understanding of who he is, right? So the second thing here, edification, he says, for the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, which accords with godliness means for the purpose of godliness, with the purpose of godliness. So the knowledge of the truth that produces saving faith, but it doesn't stop there, right? It leads to sanctification, producing godliness. That's something that we cannot separate. We cannot separate those two aspects. The first is always connected to the second. Saving faith is always leads to sanctification. And that's a major theme in this letter right here, in that uh, the, the main indictment that Paul has on these false teachers and the things that they taught was that what they taught did not produce godliness. Paul says in Titus 1 and 16, he says, by their deeds they deny him. Another major theme you can find here In verse 2, where he says, which God who never lies. He says that because the culture in Crete was, they would lift up the Greek gods. And a lot of the ideas that they had of the Greek gods, they would assimilate to their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And one that they lifted up more than anyone else was the god Zeus. And of course, god, the, the god Zeus was known to seduce women and also to lie to get his way. So what Paul's trying to say is, is God who never lies. This God, this true God, is a God who is completely different than your understanding of who God is. 
completely different. So, by the means of this, or the preaching of the word, that those may be brought to saving faith and deep truths of God, which produces godliness. Saving faith produces godliness, produces sanctification. And so this third aspect here, as he speaks, uh, so you have evangelism, you have edification, you have encouragement. It's the encouragement to endure, he says here, in hope of eternal life, which glorification here is this third component uh, to to Paul's mission here. Hope, believing what is not yet yours fully, but yet will be guaranteed to you one day. So that hope of eternal life is an encouragement to what? To, to live holy lives even now. First John 3 and 3, the man who has this hope set on him purifies himself. And so that encourages us to be motivated to faithful service. It encourages us in suffering. It sustains us. And I love this, uh, this passage that I had taught on before here, 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's a matter of focus. Where is our focus? The believer would be focused on the eternal and be motivated on the eternal. And so these three things here, that's the sum of his ministry. That's the mission of the church right there. As Bill had spoken before, there is no other mission. That's the mission right there. That Jesus Christ is the only hope for mankind. He's the only hope for salvation. And he's the only way in which you can escape wrath. Verse 2, he says, Which God who never lies promised before the ages began and the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So another thing is, is that Paul had an allegiance to God's word. His mission was tied uh, to the message. The message was the means by which the Holy Spirit would do his work. And this is something that was promised long ago, as he says, this was God's plan long before the ages began. In 2 Timothy 1 and 9, he says, The Lord who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. The covenant to redeem man was made before creation. As Hebrews 13.20 says, it was an eternal covenant, an eternal covenant. And so at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching through which Paul was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So God fulfilled his redemptive plan through Paul. 
you think about that, man, what, what a stewardship that would be. And I think Paul knew the privilege of being entrusted here was such a treasure that he was to bring the word of God to the Gentile world. I think it's because of that knowledge there that he was so effective, so powerful in his ministry, being used by God in that way. And so one thing that he had paid special attention to was to ensure that this message was carried on to the next generation. And the two men that we see here that Paul entrusted the most was Timothy and Titus. Those were two such men right there. Those were the two men that Paul was going to use to carry this message to the next generation here. And so verse, uh, verse 4 here says, To Titus, my true child, in the common faith. Paul was committed and devoted to this faithful man here. And Titus uh, and Timothy were the most important men for this next generation of ministry. Because these were the two men that Paul trusted the most to hand the ministry off to. You notice how he identifies him here. He says, my true child in the faith. This is the exact same description that he gives to, to Timothy. First Timothy 1 and 2, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And so he's saying here that these two men were brought to faith in Christ by the witness of Paul. That he was their spiritual father, uh, so to speak. And you see here in 2 Corinthians that both Paul and Titus had the same zeal and passion for the Lord. That speaks much of Titus. Just look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 16. He says, But thanks be to God who put the heart in the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal... But being himself very earnest, he is going to you on his own accord. It was by his own initiative. And so there, even though there's not much said about him, that really speaks volumes, that he had the same zeal as Paul. He had the same qualities of leadership that Paul did. And so this is likely the reason why Paul gives Titus this assignment in Crete. This is not going to be an easy assignment. But he knew that it was, Titus was somebody who could handle it because of how he handled uh, the Corinthians. He handled uh, the issues there with grace, with leadership. And so verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so sometime after uh, Paul's first imprisonment, Titus and Paul had visited um, Crete, the island of Crete, and it was there that Titus was left to complete this task, these two, this twofold task here, to set in order what remains. So, essentially, what he's saying here is get the church organized the way it should be. And we know by the text here that there was doctrinal issues in the church. 
Titus 1 and 10 says, he says, For there were many rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Verse 14 says, uh, he says, Pay no attention to the Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. So there is a Jewish influence, there is a pagan influence. And so his task was to set things straight in order, in other words, that these people had to be had to be silenced because uh, what Paul says here, because they're running whole households by the by teaching things that they ought not to teach. And so he was uh, sent on this task to uh, silence them, to expose their error and to also preach the truth. Paul says to Titus in 2 and 1, he says, teach the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. And so for the task of appointing elders, that was uh, a very, very important task here. Establishing leadership in the church by appointing elders was always a priority of Paul. If you see, wherever Paul went, what would he do? He would evangelize, he would disciple, and then the last thing he would do before he would leave is he would appoint elders. So it's very likely that Paul didn't witness to the church in Crete initially, which is why we see a lack of leadership there. Um, But selecting the right models for ministry is very, uh, very important. Because really, without proper models of godliness, sanctification, and righteousness, the church will not live in godliness, sanctification, and righteousness. The church... The leadership in the church is not meant to be virtuous uh, by their own sakes, but to establish an example, an example for others to follow. So what kind of men does God want uh, to lead the church? Well, it's one by example, right? Second Thessalonians 3 and 9, he says, Paul says that we offer ourselves as a model for you, that you may follow our example. And he says what we say, essentially what we say is also what we are as well. And so as we look through these qualifications here, you can see that almost every single one mentioned here has to do with character. And it's only in verse 9 at the very end that he speaks about having the ability to teach, having the skill to teach. So you can see where the emphasis is here. And he really sums it up here in just a few words in verse 6. One thing I look for as far as main themes is something that may be repeated more than once. And so this is repeated twice, both in verse 6 and in both in verse 7 too. He says, if anyone is above reproach. And what that means is uh, integrity of life. It means to be without fault or to be without accusation, to be blameless. 
that nobody can bring an accusation against him. And so this is a general statement and is further explained in these next verses here of being above reproach. And it's broken down here into really three categories. You see here that there's leadership in the home that he speaks of. And then he speaks of general character. And then lastly, he speaks about the ability to teach. And so the first thing here, he says, the husband of one wife. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so if a person is to be considered a leader in a church, the best way to qualify him is proving his spiritual leadership in the home. Not to say that that's a prerequisite, that you have to be, you know, somebody who has a family. But that's the proving ground right there. If you have a family, then that is where uh, you can prove your leadership right there. How does he lead his household? Is he faithful to his wife? Is he a a one-woman guy, right? The culture of Crete back then was... Sexual immorality was was rampant, right? So this is why he speaks of this here. In children who are believers. Is he leading his children to the Lord with all humility, gentleness, loving correction? Or is he overbearing and domineering? Or is he apathetic, neglecting his role? And thirdly, does he lead by example? Does he lead an, an exemplary life, not being charged with dissipation or rebellion? So if he's going to lead the church, which is also a household, you think about it, it's the household of God. And so the family there is, is the proving ground right there of how he's going to manage. That's going to give you an indication of how he manages God's house. And so leadership in the home and also in God's house are very similar here. Are very similar here. So if you would turn with me here, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's really giving an analogy here of what leadership should look like in the church. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, and I'm going to go through 12 here. He says, We prove to be gentle among you like a mother, like a mother caring for her children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brother, our toil and our hardship. We worked day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. 
For you know that we, dwe- we dealt with you, with each of you, as a father deals with his own children. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So what should spiritual, look like in the, spiritual leadership look like in the church here? Well, he's giving you an analogy here. It's, it's a parental role. It's like a parental role here. It should look like what a father and mother are to their own children. And what are the characteristics of a father and a mother? Well, it's one who nurtures. It's one who is gentle. It's one who comforts. It's one who encourages, who lovingly disciplines, who corrects. This is why John says he refers to to those that follow him. He says he refers to them as children, as his children. Peter said the same thing. And so spiritual leadership in the church is like a parental role. And so this is important to understand, to keep in mind as we go through this text here, is that that that's what spiritual leadership looks like. It doesn't look like that in the outside world, but this is something that is, is, is what should look like here in the church, right? Verse 7, for he says, for an overseer, a pastor or an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. It's verse 7 here, that's the second mention here, above reproach. He must not be self-willed, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So we're moving here now to the general characteristics. So we see leadership as we see in, in the home, in the family here. We're looking now at general character qualities uh, that one must possess here. So you see five things that are negative five things that are positive, or you could say five things that we must not be, five things that we, we must be here. So I'll just quickly go through them. He says the first thing here, not self-willed, basically means somebody who's in love with themselves, selfish arrogance, those uh, who, consume, who are completely consumed uh, with oneself, seeking self-gratification, self-promoting. Let me ask you, is this somebody that you would want to lead the church? Well, no, of course not. Because they're not going to care for others. They don't have any room for others in their mind. But these are often people that stand out. These are often people uh, who give the appearance of strong leadership. But really, at the heart, their very motive uh, is to only to serve their own ego. And this is a typical leader that you would see in the Gentile world. Look at Mark 10, 42 and 43. Christ said that you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and their people in high position exercise authority over them. But he says, this is not the way among you. Rather, whoever wants to be prominent among you shall be a servant. Right? 
Second thing here, he says, quick-tempered. Look, we all lose our temper from time to time. I did today, and I had to repent of it. But this is, this is somebody who is easily angered, somebody um, who is always uh, irritated, who is, who is unpredictable, somebody who has um, a, a seething anger that's just under the surface. You probably know maybe some people that are like that. That any false move, and it's like it erupts. over seemingly small things. And so that's the anger that James describes here in 1, chapter 1, verse 20. He says that's the anger that does not achieve the righteousness of God. It's also the meaning here of quarrelsome, being quarrelsome in 2 Timothy 2 and 24. The servant of God must not be quarrelsome. And so that's 1 and 2. Number 3, he says not a drunkard, which... Self-explanatory here. It's, it really means to linger or to be alongside wine. Somebody who likes to hang out at the bars, you could say, right? Of course, a servant of God has to have clarity of mind, be sober-minded. <clears throat> and the important point here is that somebody who it says refers to somebody being alongside wine really has a potential... Um, to damage those who may follow them, right? So the goal of a leader, an elder in the church, is never to do anything that would cause uh, somebody else here to stumble. Right? And the next one here, violent, which just means a fighter. It really is a, it's a buildup of all three of these previously mentioned. Somebody who's self-willed, quick-tempered, a drunkard, Somebody has all three of those, or likely it's going to be somebody that wants to fight, right? To solve their problems. The next one, greedy for gain, would be somebody who is a lover of money. Anybody who loves money uh, is willing to compromise their integrity, they'll be easily corrupted. And so, this is exactly the false teachers here. Uh, mentioned in chapter 1 with those uh, who taught they did so for sordid gain. Now we move on to what uh, leaders ought to be here. He says hospitable, which just means to love strangers. Opening your life to people in the context here, it is referring uh, to other Christians. There were many Christians here that would travel uh, from uh, ministry to minister to other churches, but it was also for persecution as well. Some were driven out by persecution, and so uh, many Christians would open up their home um, to meet their needs, right? So in essence, really, what it means is to be generous, somebody who is willing to use their resources to meet the needs of others, particularly those who can't pay you back. And so the next one here, lover of good. And so it uh, means a lover of good things. You know, what is, uh, what is precious to them? What, where do they spend their time? What do they spend their time doing? Who do they involve themselves with? What kind of company do they keep? 
What are their priorities? Is it God-honoring? Is there activities? Is it things that they involve themselves, draw themselves closer to God? Uh, or does it hinder their relationship with God? It really speaks of, of Philippians 4, you know, the person who focuses on what is true and what is honorable and so forth. Self-controlled, which just means a disciplined mind, somebody who is informed by the Word of God and is in control of their mind. The next one, holy, says, uh, is uh, pure, it's unpolluted. The corruption of sin is not found anywhere in their life. You could even say upright, righteous. The next one here, disciplined. Somebody who has um, control of themselves in dealing with uh, temptations of life. So you see those five things, and now these uh, six things, as far as general characteristics here. And so we we really see here um, the... uh, the standard of character for leadership in the church is very high. And you may ask, why are these standards so high? It's because because what the leaders are, the people will become. As Hosea said in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, like people, like priests. It's important because they are setting the example for everyone else to follow. It's a high calling. It is a high calling. And so if this is the standard that God wants leaders in the church uh, to live by, and they are to set themselves as an example for the congregation to follow, then really this is also the standard that God wants us to live, right? Right? Luke chapter 6, verse 40. The Lord says, when a man is fully discipled, he'll be just like his teacher. So really, the scripture here applies these character qualities to all believers, right? So regardless if we're a woman or if we're a man, these character qualities should really be the goal of our lives as Christians. Right. We'll go ahead and end there, and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, again, thank you for this time, Lord. We see these qualities that we see in true spiritual leadership, Lord. And we know that it's a high standard, and we know that nothing in ourselves, we cannot attain to any of these things it's only by your grace lord it's by your grace that we have the ability to know you the ability to be brought uh, to saving faith that we may know you be sanctified in your truth lord it's all by your grace lord we just thank you for the leadership that we have in this fellowship lord we are so privileged lord that we have men of God that we can follow that set themselves 
as examples. Lord, we just thank you for that privilege. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for the young men in this congregation as well, Lord, that someday they'll be future leaders as well, Lord. I just pray that they may um, experience the fullness of effective ministry, Lord, and that they may be examples for the next generation to follow, Lord, to be faithful uh, to Christ, be faithful ambassadors, Lord. Lord, we just pray in thankfulness for this time that we have in the Lord, in this study, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.